So as we're recording this, it is Valentine's Day. Uh, as Lauren, you'll hear Lauren point out in the episode that our big plan for today was to come talk about <laughs> cartoons. Like most holidays. But if I if I may break the Eric mold for a second, I, I feel like I'm developing this persona on the show of like the antagonist. Like I think Lauren, is, you're the one everybody likes. And then I'm like the one who edits you to say stupid things, <laughs> which I mean, I'm not going to say that's unearned. But I can be an earnest person, too. And so here, here is my message. And this is something that I would have liked to hear if I was um, a younger person listening to a Shira podcast. So this is legitimately, I'm 34 years old. This is the first Valentine's Day I have ever had a date, which is not to say I've not dated before, but I've never been seeing someone or had someone be available on Valentine's Day to spend time with me. Um, but it took me like 30 years of my life to get to a point where that was where I was like, okay with that. And where I liked myself enough to be like, you know what, this is fine. I can have lots of fun without a date. And so if anyone is out there, like feeling kind of bummed that they didn't have anyone to spend the day with, like, I know this is an oft repeated phrase and maybe it's starting to lose meaning, but like, I promise you, like, a, it does get better. Like you will grow into a person that you are much more comfortable with and confidence goes a long way. And I know that like, it's hard to fake that, but like, I promise that you will like yourself a lot and that other people will like you too, even if you don't feel that way now. That is so wonderful. That is absolutely, I think, what I needed to hear at many phases of my life. What all I'd like to add is that if you're doing Lauren's plan and just eating Girl Scout cookies and doing math homework tonight, that's fine too. And you are also worthy of love. Right. Like your your plans tonight don't reflect on you as a person. And Lauren's Girl Scout cookies are mad tasty. So that sounds really <laughs> dirty. Um, <laughs> she has samosas. I did not mean to imply anything untoward happening between Lauren and I. They're called Samoas. Get Samoas. it right or pay the price. Oh, my gosh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Cool. Happy Valentine's Day, guys. Hey everybody, welcome back to Shira Progressive of Power. I am looking at Lauren. And I'm looking at the wall. <laughs> and I'm the wall. My name is Eric. <laughs> Thanks, I actually Lauren. No, for real. I don't make a lot of eye contact with you when we do this, and you just made me realize that. That is so strange. <laughs> Alright. I I rather would take the angle that my stage name, my podcast name is The Wall. Eric the Wall Garneau. So I have this theory, and maybe our, our guests on the line who I'm I'm wasting their time would like to weigh in. My theory is that if you smoke a lot of weed, your favorite Pink Floyd album is Dark Side. And if you don't, it's The Wall. And I don't. And so my favorite album is The Wall. And now that we have the the uh, story editor for a children's television show <laughs> on the line, I'd really like to ask her opinion of drug use and Pink Floyd. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Today. Anyway, w- with no further ado, please welcome the story editor of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Josie Campbell. Whee! Hey, guys. Thank you so much for being here. We're just so honored to have you around. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, guys. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I just got to listen to Liz and Ray give their podcast and talk about the episodes, and I got jealous, and now here I am. It's fun. (laughs) Now your goal is to make them jealous, right, with all the cool stuff you say. I mean, I don't think I'm going to top Ray calling and trapped out, I believe, like a goblin wall woman. So a goblin woman, that's been that's been a hot topic on Twitter since Ray was on the show. <laughs> so uh, I love to talk about 
kind of your position as story editor, Josie. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start by sharing a small story, which is weird, but this is like a totally earnest story. This is not a bit. Sure. Um, so when I was in seventh grade, no, I'm sorry, eighth grade, our, our algebra teacher gave us an assignment, uh, which was to find an adult and ask them how they use math in their job, okay? And I, I was the smart ass in the class, kind of, and so I was like, because I knew right away, the object is to, uh, that she wants everybody to show that everyone uses math in their job. Well, And heaven forbid you let your teacher teach you a lesson. Right. Ooh. So <laughs> what I did was I was very active on the news group Alt Toys Transformers. This was 1996. <laughs> and on that group were two very active members, Bob Forward and Larry Dottilio. Now, if you're fans of this show, you know that they wrote the podcast for She-Ra, or I'm sorry, the podcast, the premiere of She-Ra, Princess of Power, the five-part secret of the sword. In 1996, they were the story editors for Beast Wars Transformers. And I had their email addresses. So I emailed Larry Dottilio. And I was like, Larry, I love Transformers. <laughs> My math teacher wants to know, how much math do you use in your job? And he's, he responded like, you know, honestly, A, this is a weird math class. I never had assignments like this. <laughs> and B, kind of none. Like I have an accountant that does my taxes and that's the only place math would come in. And so I turned that in and I got an A minus <laughs> because I was the only person who didn't ask like my parent or my parent's friend. I asked the story editor of Beast Wars Transformers. <laughs> and I totally like, I was the only kid who found someone who said that they don't use math in their job. And... <laughs> But the important thing about that story is that to me, like that was the first time I'd ever reached out to anybody who created anything that I thought was cool. And Larry replied in a day. He was gracious and kind. He gave me the exact answer I was looking for and was so nice about it. And I had already had an interest in like English and creativity and stuff. And, and at that point, I was like, I want to be a story editor when I grow up. Now, I didn't do that. I worked for Cards mm -hmm. Against Humanity. But... Josie, I think you have the coolest job in the world, and <laughs> it's really cool to me to be able to talk to you about it. And so my first question for you, obviously, is how much math do you use in your job? <laughs> I mean, I'd hate to crib from uh, the great Larry Dottilio's answer, which is very little. Uh, there are numbers. I see them on pages. Uh, <laughs> that's that's about it. We, we, use, we use line numbers to call out lines, and I can count, so... So I guess uh, basic counting uh, is the most math I do in my job. <laughs> I'm super getting like Lego movie vibes right now uh, with Princess Unikitty. Business, 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 numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so Miss Niece, if you're out there listening to this show, I completed your assignment. I got a, a answer slightly better than none. I got counting. Solid A minus. <laughs> yeah. Solid A minus. But I mean, for real, I, I think your job is so cool. Like. What what in like elevator pitch? What does a story editor do for people who maybe don't know? Um, so sort of the basics of a story editor is uh, like you said before, it's it's sort of the equivalent of a head writer. Uh, basically, I run the writers' room. Uh, I work with Noelle and the writers to come up with the episodes, to come up with the characters and the story arcs that we're doing throughout the show. Uh, I edit all of the uh, scripts. Um, I'll do passes on scripts, or I'll. Uh, do rewrites when we're in storyboards or animatics. Uh, and then I write episodes of the show as well. Um, so I think that um, the, the of this first season, the episodes I wrote was episode four, which is the first Perfuma episode, uh, Flowers for Shira. I wrote episode eight, which is the Princess Prom episode. And then I wrote the episode we're talking about today, which is episode 12, which is 
every every bit of mythology <laughs> we could throw into the show. <laughs> well, and I I kind of have always concepted the role of story editor as like a a mythology keeper, which maybe is a little high minded, but I I feel like that's what you're doing, right? Yeah, a, a lot of the show is definitely, and a lot of my job is definitely sort of keeping track of the mythology, keeping track of the characters, keeping track of sort of the continuity. So besides sort of editing and writing, like I'm trying to file away as much information about Etheria in my brain as humanly possible. <laughs> this episode I started watching last night for I think the third time and mm -hmm. was specifically trying to watch it through the lens of meeting you and going, okay, the person who wrote this and kind of monitored the writing of the entire thing, you know, what do I want to ask? And... I'm just it just felt so lore heavy and all of my questions are just fan theories about like is this going <laughs> to happen in season 2 and those aren't those aren't good questions. I guess um what I'm most curious about is from your perspective mm -hmm. uh how much of this lore and mythos did you invent? You know, mm -hmm. did, like did you feel was your original creation versus maybe someone else decided and you're just sort of policing it. How much of this is, is truly feels like yours to you? Well, I mean, I think the, the really great thing about our show is how intensely collaborative it is. I mean, um, Noelle came in and she came in with a lot of the world already figured out. Um, I've said before in other interviews, but I, I remember when she first brought me on and she gave me the um, show Bible and it was like reading a diary slash a timeline of everything that has ever happened in Etheria, every single character and their point of view. So a, a lot of this stuff she's already had sort of big plans for and had sort of figured out. Um, so a lot of what we were doing on my side was sort of winnowing down what we wanted to say, sort of figuring out when to sort of drop different seeds, um, when we should sort of put in some of the lore that we're figuring out. Um, but uh, like I said, it was actually really collaborative. I mean, honestly... Um, a lot of the stuff that we're sort of seeding in are things that we sort of pulled from other Shira media, like the runestones, like um, <clears throat> some of the uh, sort of the the ideas of the princesses and their powers being sort of a little connected. Um, we sort of looked at everything that was Shira related. Noelle had a big, a lot of big sort of ideas of what she wanted to do, and then sort of like together as a room, we actually talked a lot about what is this episode. We know this is a huge turning point for the show. We knew that sort of episode eight onwards is a big turning point for the show getting a lot more sort of serialized and sort of building up to this giant climax. So uh, I would say I felt like the actual mythology and lore itself, we we actually as a room and even with sort of the directors and board artists talked a lot about and were very collaborative with. Um, I sort of feel like the one thing that is truly mine coming out of this episode is is largely the way Swiftwind talks. <laughs> <laughs> Because we had always we had always kind of joked like when we were like talking about the show at the very beginning that Swift One would be the most revolutionary of them all, um, and then we got into writing the episode and we're like, okay, we need all these big mythology points, and then we need all like there's going to be big revelations, and we're finally going to see the Crystal Castle and Light Hope, but also Swift One is going to talk for the first time. <laughs> so it was it was sort of a lot of collaboration. And then it was me listening to the Hamilton soundtrack as I wrote and was like, what if Swift one was Lin-Manuel and he was just wanted to free all the horses on Etheria. So I would say <laughs> that was that was the part I felt the most uh, alone ownership with. But so much of it was just sort of talking back and forth and figuring out what felt 
the best for that episode. That's <laughs> the swift wind of revolution. That's so awesome. And uh, we both were very happy that you said that. Um, I, I love that we have you on for this episode, not just because you wrote it, but because, I mean, to me, and I mean, I don't know if you want to get into the episode specifics now, but I feel like mm -hmm. this episode introduces kind of the one truly new element uh, to She-Ra lore in the form of uh, Mara, which I think, Lauren, mm -hmm. is something you talked about early in the season, that that's kind of the one like big revolution to She-Ra in here. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I guessed that anyway. I did say Mara was a truly new concept, but if what Josie is saying is so much was pulled from other She-Ra media, is that is that true? Or are you yeah, actu were you actually sparked by something else? I mean, we were sparked a little bit by, I mean, there there was a character named Mara in sort of the, the She-Ra He-Man universe, but this, our Mara is very much, I think, sort of our own creation. Um, I think that was... I would say, yeah, this in this episode and sort of in our series in general, the biggest leap that we took is the idea is that there wasn't just one Shira, that there was a line of Shiras, that there's this mantle that gets passed down from woman to woman, girl to girl, um, and that Mara was the last. So yeah, I would I would definitely agree. Um, a lot of things we pulled from the old show, a lot of things were things that the old show set up that we got to dig into, but I would I would definitely say the introduction of Mara is sort of the, the, the first biggest deviation we're doing and sort of the biggest sort of new idea we like playing with because we like the idea of there being sort of this this line, um, there being this past and this history, but in some ways it's still inaccessible to Adora. Um, in some ways that even though she's gone to the Crystal Castle, she should be getting the answers. There's still stuff for her to figure out. And to me, it, this is a very deep pull, but it kind of reminds me of Hero, which is like the uh -huh. pre-Eternian He-Man that never made it to the show, maybe even the mini comics. Like he might, he was so late in the original Masters line. But this idea that there was kind of a pre-He-Man He-Man, and I, I thought that uh, for me, Mara was a very cool kind of nod to that idea while doing something totally new. And now, not to, because I mean, not to say you cribbed from Star Wars, because this. Plot repeats a lot. <laughs> everything does. But the, yeah, right. And, well, more accurately, Star Wars cribs from everything. But there's kind of like a a Jedi type thing going on here with with Light Hope and what she wants of her charges. Isn't like I think that's really interesting. I mean, definitely for this episode. I mean, when we're in the writers' room, we talk a lot about a bunch of different influences. Like we we do talk a lot about Star Wars. We talk a lot about Lord of the Rings. Um, we've watched through all the old Shira. So there was a, sort of like a lot of think things that I think inspired us going into this. Um, but as sort of at the end of the day, I think that like more than anything, what really sort of inspired this idea that like Adora is part of a line is sort of that idea of sort of digging into her past a little bit more, uh, the past of Etheria a little bit more, and sort of like. Who is Shira? Like, there's a magical sword. There's a hologram. What does this all mean? Um, so it felt like there was a lot, a lot of fun we could have, sort of digging into, sort of like, well, there was a line. There were there were more than one. Um, Adora is the last, um, and sort of this. She already knew she had to save the world, but now she knows that she has to save the world, and she's doing it um, sort of on her own in a lot of ways, even with Light Hope helping. I like that choice for two major reasons. Um, one is, I think it gives a reason for children watching the show to be interested in Adora's past. Even though we don't see her as we do in the 80s pilot, 
you know, with with He-Man and Eternia and all this, her origin story isn't isn't laid out like that in this version. You're you're telling kids something more is there. Get excited about it. Start asking questions. And I don't know if when I was eight or nine years old, I would have necessarily cared about who is Shira without this episode. This episode mm-hmm. inspires like that hunger for more story. I also really like it thinking about, you know, kids playing on the playground. So I remember playing Lion King mm-hmm. uh, with my friends on the playground just over and over and over every day. And I never got to be Simba and I never got to be Nala because <laughs> cooler kids always got to be those characters. Mm-hmm. But I like this idea that, you know, very Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's many Slayers and anyone can be Spider-Man and there are many She-Ra's. And it just allows, you know, every every kid, every girl to say, that's me. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I completely feel you because I would play Ninja Turtles on the playground and I always wanted to be Michelangelo because he's ostensibly the best. Uh, And all of my friends would tell me, I can't be Michelangelo, I have to be April because I was the girl. I would say no, and then there'd be two Michelangelos playing (laughs) 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 over which one's saying Cowabunga Dude. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think also some of this episode gets into sort of one of the big sort of themes of the show is also that you don't, nobody does this on their own. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to save the world by yourself. Um, obviously, like, there's there's a lot of stuff that Light Hope's saying. There's a lot of mythology that's being thrown at you. But sort of at the end of the day, I think the other thing that we really wanted to get out of this episode is, is sort of the lesson that Adora takes away that it's not really about destiny. It's not really about this, like, really abstract idea of being a hero. It's about the people around you. Um, and I think that's... That's nice. That's something that I think that we really baked into our show that if you want to affect change in the world, you don't have to do it by yourself. The best way to change things is to join other people, to, to join your friends, to join a princess alliance, to join a movement. Um, and that's how you actually change things for the better. Um, so it's it's a little it's a little subtler in some places, but I think this is an episode that really sort of lays out a lot of what uh, we really like about the show, which is sort of telling kids, hey, Like, even if you're a hero, even if you're strong, you still need your friends sometimes, and together you can do amazing things. Let's make it Mara's also assigned in this episode with the responsibility for literally stranding them in a different dimension. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which the the gravity of that did not hit me until this walk this watch through. It's called Despondos, and they're they're just mm-hmm. out there by themselves, uh, and so trying to you know ask questions about Adora's backstory. If there hasn't been a Shira in a thousand years, I guess the implication would be this planet didn't have any more, but we're stuck out here, so she had to come from somewhere else. Hooray. That, <laughs> uh, that was such a cool lore pull, too. Like, I, I couldn't tell, I despondent maybe from the Mike Young production uh, mm-hmm. cartoon, but man, what a cool, like, reference. I really appreciate how you guys integrated not just filmation, but all sorts of sources to make a, a cool pastiche of continuity. Yeah, I mean, I, Shira is an incredible property. Like, we, when we went into it, I mean, Noel's definitely talked about the fact that we wanted to make something that felt new, that felt different, that felt apropos to kids um, and to young audiences and even to older audiences nowadays. But, I mean, it's the original Shira is amazing. The, the concept is so cool. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, Shira got away with being 
a much deeper, much more interesting show than a lot of other 80s shows because she got to be a spinoff. So there wasn't so much pressure on her having to set up this whole world. Um, and because, you know, this is a cartoon that had a bunch of female characters, which, you know, is still a rarity. So the fact that, like, we get to play with She-Ra is amazing. And we definitely, I mean, in the writer's room, I think we've worn out Wiki Grayskull. Like, we rewatched the, we rewatched the DVDs. Yeah. Like, uh, we're definitely doing our own thing. And we're definitely charting our own path with this. Uh, but we definitely want to honor what's come before because it it's a cool property. And it's um, an unusual property. And it's something that I think really really desperately needed to be rebooted for this day and age. It's great to bring sort of female characters back, um, female fighters back, female superheroes back uh, for kids uh, nowadays. I definitely want to talk about some of those female characters and uh, what they do in this episode, because we've talked a lot about Entrapta recently, Mm -hmm. our favorite goblin woman. (laughs) And I was pretty solidly of the belief that Entrapta is true neutral and I'm, I'm probably still there, but the scene in this episode in which she shows so, she's not as naive as you'd think, and she says, I went and stole things from other rooms, <laughs> and there weren't people in those rooms at the time when I stole things, but she knows full well that she's stealing, and she, she just shows a little bit more of a conniving and aware in nature than I thought. I'm not so sure true neutral anymore. I mean, maybe it's just the influence of the Horde. Maybe it's the Horde giving her permission to be a little bad, but mm-hmm. that was a naughty Entrapta. <laughs> I mean, I do think that Catra's probably a bad influence on literally everyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Entrapta is one of my favorite characters as well. She is so much fun to write and to talk about. Um, and it's because, like, I, I, they, there's so, she's much more complex, I think, than uh, you realize when you first look at her. Um, she is tr- true neutral in some ways, but in other ways, she's got such blinkers on. She's got such blinders on when it comes to what she wants to do. Um, and she has such a hard time sometimes reaching out to other people and seeing other people as people and not just things that are in the way between her and the science she wants to do. Um, so I, I really actually love the evolution of Entrapped in the last like sort of half of this season um, because she sort of goes from sort of the funny character um, who is sort of spouting off science jokes and is wonderful to I think a lot more sort of three-dimensional rich character who is making bad choices. <laughs> but like some of it is, I mean, she literally thinks that she was abandoned. Uh, she thinks that she was left to die. She's got new friends now. Friendship is still such a new concept for her. She hasn't quite figured it out. So now that she's sort of with this new group of people and they're showing that they care about her and they care about what she thinks, like, Entrapta's kind of going whole hog. Like, she wants to show her new friends what she can do. She wants to impress them. And she wants to do her cool science. Um, I think, uh, I mean, in this episode, uh, I think we spend a lot of time with her in the um, Black Garnet Chamber and in episode 113. And I think that was important because it's also entrapped and not quite seeing the effects her actions have on others. It's, it's something that's a recurring sort of theme with this character, but it's also something that like she's tinkering with the very planet itself and she thinks it's cool, but she literally can't see what's going on outside. She can't see beyond sort of the goggles she's put on. Um, so she was just super fun to write this episode. Plus, it's, I always thought it would be very funny that she's just going through the vents and just taking things and has very little concept <laughs> of private property. 
in my notes, I had written down that uh, Catra gives Entrapta what she's looking for, which is I, I, basically what Lauren was saying. But I, I think it's so interesting that, like, yeah, things that we had talked about a couple episodes ago almost seem manipulative, like the hair stroking. Like, mm-hmm. Entrapta is kind of – like, I think that is the amount of, like, physical affection she seems to want. Like, everything that Catra lets her do and gives her agency to do is just – like hitting her sweet spot and that's I don't know it is it's a really cool development in the season that uh lets Entrapta be herself without really committing to a side in the war no definitely not um and I and I I always when we we got into the storyboards and Animax loved that part of the episode that was like a little touch the board artist put in of Catcher sort of stroking Entrapta's hair because I also love just the parallels too with like Shadow Weaver is so touchy-feely with the hair and with touching people's faces that like in a weird way, it's also an evolution of Catra of being like, oh, she's also impl- the methods employed against her. She's starting to employ to manipulate people too, which is so fun because, th- like I said, this back half is Catra coming into her own in yeah. a bad way, but she's coming into her own. <laughs> so we should talk about Shadow Weaver. You may know Josie; she's our favorite. And uh, <laughs> the Weaver Catra showdown in this episode, like the first time I saw it. I was like, what? I can't believe they did that. Like, it, it felt so final and so, like, mm-hmm. vital in a way. Like, something about that Catra swiping at Shadow Weaver's mask, it just shocked me how, like, direct and potent that was. We were talking about this before the episode started, that the first time I watched it, I felt a little let down because I have been itching for action sequences. I'm like, show me this like new high quality animation and these empowered women, like give me a crazy action sequence. And it's over really fast. So the second time we watched it, uh, I came around and actually liked it a lot more. And then Eric started seeing my point of view. And so we really- I still love it though. Yeah, we've really come to center on this scene. Um, I think- Mm -hmm. It's a fast battle, uh, mm-hmm. but Catra's dialogue definitely justifies it. You know, you, it could have been a long slog of a fight between them, but Catra has spent so much time studying Shadow Weaver and preparing for this that there's nothing Shadow Weaver can do that would surprise her. She knows all the moves, and so it's it's not a contest. And so I can appreciate that. Even though I could have gone for like five more minutes of, of <laughs> lightning being thrown around. <laughs> I mean, we, I, I love, I mean, Lorraine Toussaint voices Shadow Weaver and it is always a joy to see her do those lines. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the word maybe you were looking for was like visceral. Because yes, like, thank you. Yeah. Story editor. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't have that job. You've been story edited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored. Uh-huh. But yeah, but it was definitely like that that scene we knew was was really sort of like pivotal to the Catra sort of side of things and the Catra story. Um, and it's like Shadow Weaver is this powerful creature. She is terrifying. She has her shadow spies. She has her shadow magic. Um, but I mean, I, I think it was really important for that scene to be sort of centered on what Catra is saying, what she's doing. Cause like in a lot of ways, this is the resolution of Catra and Shadow Weaver's relationship this season. Um, it's Catra finally proving that she's not just the second to Adora, that she's strong, that she can take out Shadow Weaver. Um, and that realistically she's doing it fast because she's scrappy and she's got a plan, but Shadow Weaver is like a giant monster woman. Like uh, it's, it's definitely something that, Catra is leaning, all the things that Shadow Weaver has always sort of 
thrown at her that she, you know, she hides behind people, she hides behind things, she's sort of a coward, are the things that Katra is embracing as her strengths to take her down. So it's it's definitely a scene that we wanted her to, like, people to be like, go Katra, yes! And then the very next thing she does is, you know, get entrapped to turn on the Black Garnet and sort of create this chaos mm-hmm. throughout the world and be like, oh, good, she's... <laughs> She's taking her spot. (laughs) So there's like a lot of emotions going through that scene. Um, But also just, I mean, AJ and um, uh, AJ Matralka, who voices Katra, just also knocks it out of the park with just sort of the triumph and the hurt in her voice as she's screaming this stuff at her foster mother. It's it was an intense scene to like watch come together. Um, And it was it was just it felt like so right, though, for it to be this quick, quick, brutal battle between these two characters who in a lot of ways are like the larger than life characters in our show. It was so, I mean, brutal is the perfect word. I was much more shaken by this scene this time watching it because I noticed whether or not this was what we were trying to show. The first thing that happens in this fight is Shadow Weaver wipes out all of the monitors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could take that as just, ooh, shattered glass. It's really dramatic. But I went, oh, my God, she's taking out all the security cameras. Like, she's erasing the footage. No one's going to watch what she's about to do. No, Mm -hmm. I was horrified for Catra. I'm like, Shadow Weaver has turned off everything that could implicate her while she lays what she thinks is going to be this, like, savage beatdown on Catra. And so, yeah, even though Catra's going to destroy the world, too, you're definitely cheering for her because whatever Shadow Weaver had planned in her mind wasn't awful. <laughs> yeah, no, Shadow Weaver did not plan to lose that battle today. <laughs> I, I, she, she definitely let her emotions get the best of her, though, because I also don't, like, if she had won, like, th- she just, like, sh- told her boss no and shattered everything. Right. Like, she she's definitely, like, reached the end of her rope in a bad way, so it was... It was uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun to write, and it was a lot of fun to watch uh, happen. <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of the emotions in that scene, like it it all kind of starts with Hordak just completely dressing down Shadow Weaver, which is very kind of unexpected and in its own way very visceral. Like especially Shadow Weaver's like horrified response. You know, she's kind of been at the top of this chain of abuse for so long, and now it's turning on her, and she has no power all of a sudden and like the way Lorraine uh has Weaver react to that is it's it's kind of sad in a way you know like you really feel for her even though she's a monster oh yeah definitely I mean just when she's like the you know black uh, garnet shard that she's put in her mask is shattered and it's on the ground and then you see that she is this woman literally scrambling for her power whispering for it to like pleading with it to come back to her like there is something that's very sad and pathetic about shadow weaver um that and i i think this scene and this this episode in general like the tables turn on a lot of characters and like people are basically finding out revelations that they don't want to find out necessarily. Um, Shadow Weaver is basically realizing she's lost her position. Uh, Adora is realizing that she's got this epic destiny, but it got broken and she doesn't know exactly what to do next. So it's it's sort of all a piece with sort of this episode being sort of the big turning point before we get into the like gigantic battle for Bright Moon in episode 13. Turning tables. I feel like there's one other um, major character we need to talk about in here, and it's the titular character, Light Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, what an, a fascinating redesign. So first of all, is 
can you share any insight on kind of the thought behind that? Because for maybe listeners who don't know, in the original, Light Hope was kind of like Zordon minus the face. Like just <laughs> Very a, a, literal interpretation of the yes. words light and hope. Like a beam of light that uh, it was Lou Scheimer's voice acting, so very low and She-Ra. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, who lived in a crystal castle in the sky. So you literally inverted that, first of all, because this castle is underground. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. What, what was kind of your thinking in, in remaking Light Hope for this version? Um, so I can't talk too much about the, the um, actual physical remake of her, because I think that's more sort of a, that was a lot more sort of on Noelle and sort of the designers. But in, in this version, we wanted, like Light Hope in the old show and the crystal castle in the old show kind of, show up in an episode kind of out of nowhere and it is a little bit of a base but uh sort of like a lot of the elements that we thought were really cool it felt like the old show never really got a chance to dig into it very much um so i think for us um we really liked the idea that light hope uh and the crystal castle were a lot more connected to the lore of shira we liked the idea of light hope being a lot more connected to sort of um sort of the world around her um, and a lot more connected to, in our version of this, sort of the first ones, um, and uh, and sort of um, questions about what happened with Etheria, the past, um, sort of involving her a lot more in the mythology than I think the old show really ever did. Um, and then Light Hope herself was actually, it was actually a, a character that was, we, we spent a lot of time going back and forth of how we wanted her to act and to sound like, because she is a hologram in our version, uh, she is tasked with guiding Shira, um, but she's also still something of a cipher. Um, she's definitely a character that we didn't want to just make her sound like a cold robot. We didn't want her to uh, sort of overshadow anybody. So in a lot of ways, we we played with this idea of sort of a, a, a keeper of the lore, um, that she's sort of this this big figure that should have all the answers, but she also doesn't necessarily, um, or at least not the answers that Adora wants to hear at that moment. That she's excited and elated in a lot of ways that she's got Shira back. Uh, I mean, she's been trying to, she accessed Adora's mind all the way back in the pilot. Um, she shared those images with Adora. Um, but um, I think along with sort of everything we want to do with the show, uh, we also still wanted to sort of put it put the idea of this sort of like guardian of destiny on its head like in some ways she's a yoda character but our show is a lot more about choice rather than destiny so when it came down to light hope it was here she is she's got a lot of answers it's not the answers that adora necessarily wants to hear um she has this knowledge that adora has been craving but now isn't necessarily excited to learn um but um the sort of like biggest thing that light hope is getting out in this episode is this idea of this is your destiny, sort of um, juxtaposed to Swiftwind, who's basically saying, Adora, you're doing this because you chose to. Um, and I think I think that's a lot of Light Hope um, symbolically in the show is sort of like a, a literal sort of figure that's telling somebody their destiny. Um, and Adora is um, sort of figuring out, um, you know, like how she fits into that. Um, it's a big thing. I mean, if, if somebody handed me a sword and told me I was destined to save the world, I'd have a lot of questions too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's really smart to tie Light Hope into the, the lore more. I, one suspects that that probably was the intention originally, since kind of the animatic of the 80s She-Ra transformation is the background of the Crystal Castle. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, how does this relate to Grayskull? How does this really relate to her power? We don't really know. So I, I'm glad that this is 
you know, central to her mythology, which it, it feels like it ought to be. And maybe we'll get answers to those other questions later. Yeah, I've always, I've always seen her as even a little bit of a stand-in for sorceress as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, still, I still stand by that, given that we've heard the word Eternia used in this series. Yeah, we may never see He-Man, but we definitely heard Eternia and Grayskull. So <laughs> those two words I'm going to let fly. I do uh, appreciate the, it's kind of a tropey gag, but it's always a funny one where she goes to try and choose a form that is maybe more pleasing to the <laughs> eye. Um, very, very Lego movie too, very Mass Effect. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the sort of all-powerful being that doesn't know how to relate to humans. Yep, yep. We, we joke that her uh, human testing's in beta, so it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, I mean, that, that, that is the fun with, with, uh, with our version of Light Hope is, is the fact that she's, uh, she she is this big mythic figure, and then she doesn't quite know exactly how to interface with like a biological being, or or like should she be a creepy little boy? Is is that okay? Is this better? All right, <laughs> Do you like this. Yeah. So I, I love I love that scene because that's your cold open, and my favorite thing about it is where it cuts. Like it cuts somewhere, I think, in Light Hope's kind of third try yeah. while she's reconfiguring a face and you don't know where it's going to go. And then the cut implies like, oh, this is going this probably lasts a long time in real time. Uh, and this is probably a good place for me to ask about something you brought up before we hit the record button, Josie, which is mm-hmm. you have a background in sketch comedy, right? Which maybe partially explains why this show is so funny. <laughs> Yeah, um, I I definitely, uh, when I first came out to Los Angeles, I was doing a bunch of comedy at UCB. I was par- uh, part of a, a couple of different comedy troupes. Um, and then um, before She-Ra, actually uh, directly before She-Ra, I was one of the writers for a Disney sketch comedy show called Right Now Kapow that was like an animated sketch comedy show for kids. Um, and I mean, a lot of it is like, we like, like Noelle definitely has an amazing sense of humor. And we definitely, when we hired writers, we hired people uh, who not could not only like pull off the amazing emotions and big emotional beats, but like also the gags, um, and that felt important to us too. Um, that that the show was funny. That it was like you know like I, I'm personally am somebody who I come from a sketch comedy background. One of my favorite shows growing up was Sailor Moon, which is actually like hilarious. Um, it, it felt like having a funny show with Shira, like sort of also help get you into the world a lot more, get you to like these characters, and really makes it a lot uh, more emotional when sort of those big shifts happen. And all of a sudden we go from like Light Hope's like doing wacky things with her faces to Catra and Shadow Weaver are having a mother-daughter showdown. So, uh, but yeah, I do I do a lot of punch-up passes on things. And uh, definitely uh, one of the things I love about our show is is just how much fun we get to have with it. Look at these readings. It's incredible. This seems to confirm my theories about the techno-organic nature of First One's machinery resulting in thaumaturgical compatibility between magic and science! <laughs> I'm going to need you to try again, but this time talk like a normal person. Scorpia seems like she understands. Scorpia is drawing stick figures holding hands. I call it Super Pal Trio. This is me, this is Catra, and I think it's clear. Come on, I mean, I'm a bit of an artist. We've been here for a while, but I don't want to go without naming my favorite character, because she has a moment, and that's Angela. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Angela having this uh, empowering 
conversation with her daughter is a great foil to Catra and Shadow Weaver, and I'm so glad it was included. Um, Angela and Glimmer obviously don't have the best relationship all the time, but they do have a very realistic and very complicated mother-daughter relationship. Um, Add in the fact that Angela is also the queen, uh, the king is no longer around, and there's, there's so much pressure on these two to love each other and be functional. This is the episode where I think once and for all, Angela says, Glimmer, you're a commander. I trust you. And uh, I love the line, I will not consign you to the same regrets. I it, wrote that down too. It's so moving. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a stereotypical lady in that I have some, some mommy issues. And I <laughs> notice some of the best parts of my personality and also some of the worst parts of my personality come from my mother. And it's such a refreshing and beautiful thing to witness to see a mom say I'm I'm not perfect and I've made some mistakes and I don't want to pass those down to you go get them Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I I personally really love Angela and sort of the last um basically four episodes um it was definitely something that I mean a lot of Glimmer's character is wanting to be recognized wanting to be respected wanting to be seen as an adult which you know is a is a very sort of normal wants for a teen girl to have um, and a very, a very, uh, uh, I think, universal conflict a lot of us teen girls had with our mothers of, you know, like, we're not a child, I'm an adult, you can treat me as an adult. So sort of the stuff we're doing with Angela at the very end of the season is some of my favorite things because I love the fact that it, it works. Like, Glimmer and her are able to sort of finally reach each other um, and finally, she is able to recognize that she's still going to worry about Glimmer, but Glimmer is smart and capable, and she can also save the world, that she doesn't have to hold her back. Um, and I think um, it's it's uh, a couple of episodes earlier, but I, I think the big turning point for them is episode 10, uh, when, you know, she admits that she feels that she got her father killed, she got King Micah killed, um, because I think that's such a... When, when we sort of came up with that, that room, it felt like it really solidified who Angela is, which is somebody who cares so much and she wants to keep everybody safe and she can't, she's in a war. Um, I think the other thing that's really important with Angela and with Shadow Weaver, honestly, is we wanted to get into more realistic depictions of sort of these, or like at least like sort of more realistic depictions of like complex older women and complex mother figures. Um, I think that that's something that we don't really see very often in cartoons. We don't really see very often in media, period. Uh, a lot of times it's either the sort of like perfect mother figure who doesn't do anything wrong uh, or it's, you know, you know, tangled in the evil witch. Um, so we wanted to sort of explore sort of Angela and explore Shadow Weaver and explore um, sort of the idea of mother-daughter relations, the familial relations, um, uh, protege relation, protege-mentor relationships, um, was sort of a more nuanced eye than we felt like those relationships between women really get in media a lot of times. So before we go, I think there's one image in this episode in particular that is very freeze framey and that I would bet fans have spent a long time dissecting. I know Lauren has. Yeah, um, and we're not going to, we will get tweeted at so much if we don't talk <laughs> about this. Yeah, so huh? the outlines of the 12 princesses, some of whom we know, some of whom we don't, uh, can you name all 12 of them, please? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, is, is, 
I guess, is there anything that you want to say about that or like anything you you want to kind of vaguely tease coming up in season two? I think already Noella said that we will be getting into some more princesses. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that sort of like I, yeah, I've seen people also talking about that freeze frame. Um, I think the the important takeaway from that uh, scene is sort of sort of how a theory is interconnected and sort of what we already talked about, which is some of the Mara stuff. I can't really speculate too much on what's going to happen next. Uh, a lot of this is going to be, you guys got to wait and see until season two comes out, which I believe is April 26th. Uh, but uh, there's some fun stuff coming up. There's 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 more stuff to be had. <laughs> just, to, just to tick off the social media listener boxes. Okay, definitely we saw a cat. Definitely <laughs> maybe there is a looky or a lossy yeah. type. And yeah, yeah. Some real sweet-looking bullhorns also. I mean, we, we've seen all of it. We're thinking about it. The only new thing I have to add to the fan theories that I've spouted many an episode already is that this episode reminded us uh, that a princess can be cut off from her runestone. They specifically said Scorpia is disconnected from the Black Garnet. And I, I, all, I already expressed my delight and wonder seeing the tethers sort of break off the Black Garnet and hoping that Scorpia gets some some cool powers, but I'm wondering if that's true for anyone else out there. Um, maybe we haven't met other princesses just because they're far away. They're like on the other side of the planet, or maybe some of them they don't even know who they are, or they've forgotten, or we have to discover them in some other way because you can apparently have your powers taken away, and Shadow Weaver can wipe your mind. There's lots of <laughs> lots of things that could have been done here. All right, fans, we said it all. <laughs> Being on the Horde side is not as much fun as it seems, no. <laughs> I do want to add one thing to your observations, Lauren, which I noticed this time. It seems as though Glimmer has an outline, but then also there's another angel character. Well, Did they're the notice? same color. Oh, never mind. It's got to be Angela, right? Observation withdrawn. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I, I cracked something <laughs> here. No, I think it's both of them. I thought that was an interesting choice, though, because... They're, you know, mother and daughter. They're the same color. They're from the same stone. But there wasn't other families sort of depicted in the same way. Like they sort of got the honor of both being shown. I think part of the fun of this podcast is just saying things that are really wrong. So like our, our friends at DreamWorks can hear how wrong we are. <laughs> I hope you all enjoy that. Um, so before we go, is there anything you want to tell listeners or, or like where can people find you on the internet if you'd like them to interact with you, maybe ask you about their own um, algebra assignments? <laughs> sure. If anybody wants me to confirm for their math teachers that a writer rarely uses math in her everyday life, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cozy Jamble. Um, that's also my website, CozyJamble.com. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was just going to say it's been so fun watching everybody respond so positively to what we're doing with the characters, to sort of this new take we're doing on the show. Um, it was such a thrill to see everybody really, really enjoy and spark off of and respond to the first uh, season. Uh, and I truly cannot wait for people to see what we have coming up next in April. Us too. We can't wait. Listen to your heart. Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.
This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>